Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. Just a reminder that the supporter sales stream thing that I'm doing is going to be this Saturday at 11 a.m. I had a blast during the last one and there's a ton more stuff for this one as well. I'll probably do at least a handful more of them. So really looking forward to that, but let's jump in and see the questions we got this week. First up, over on the YouTube support service, James Pingel said they recently got two VM2s, which are those brand new remade VMUs for the Dreamcast. You know, those little things that were the memory cards, but also had the little D-pad and buttons on them. And apparently, when using them with their Dreamcast that has a mode installed, they it flashes and doesn't seem to have enough power to stay on. Their Dreamcast has a stock, <coughs> excuse me, a stock PSU that's not yet recapped with the mode and this self-healing fuse on the controller board, as well as a Noctua fan. So um, there's a few things that you could check. James asked about switching out that self-healing fuse. That's a possibility, but I would actually start by recapping the power supply, because this is one of those things where your power supply could have been fading over time, but as hopefully most uh, things are made, they overspect the power supply just slightly. Um, and then by doing so, as it fades over time, it's still usable, even though it's not up to 100%. So just by replacing the capacitors on that, you might be able to fix this issue. And if I'm wrong, you've now just breathed another 20, li 20 years of life into that power supply. So I don't mind um, I don't mind recommending that because the cost to do that yourself is very cheap. As long as you have the right tools, it's very easy as well. And even if you were to send it to a modder, that can't be the, the hardest and most expensive thing, especially because you could totally disassemble the Dreamcast, pull that power board out, mail just that. So, it, you know, that should be fairly cheap. I would start there and then look into the fuse because what you do not want to do is put in a fuse that's too big. And that way, because the whole point of a fuse is if too much power is going through or the wrong power, it blows. So you don't want to increase that because that would just, it could potentially send too much power through or too much. I'm trying to oversimplify just to make this easy for everybody, but replacing fuses with different spec ones is always bad. Now, maybe that the self-healing fuse is slightly under-spec'd than the original that was on there. That would certainly be a possibility. But I would start with the power supply. You could try putting an exact original fuse in there, not one of the self-healing ones. That could be an, uh, a very quick thing if you happen to have one. But if not, then go to Console 5, order their power supply cap kit, and order a couple of extra fuses and just try it all at the same time. Because at that point, you'll pay more in shipping than you will the fuse, so you might as well just get the cap kit. Shipping might still be more depending on how cheap that cap kit is. So yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, my friend just got two of them in, and I don't even think they've taken them out of the box yet, so I'm not sure. I haven't really seen any detailed reviews on it, but I would love to see do other people have this issue? Is it just the fact that your power supply was probably aging and real close to needing uh, refurbishing anyway? Or is this going to be a problem with the VM2s? So I don't know. Um, but I would check. I would start with getting caps and a fuse. If you're in the US or Canada, Console 5 is great. If you're overseas, uh, Console 5 is still great, but you just have to pay for overseas shipping and kind of just go from there and see. Uh, but I would love to know the answer to this. So please keep us updated because I hope that, no, no offense to you, James, but I hope this is just a one-off thing where a few unlucky people who were about to have PSUs die anyway had this happen. Um, but if it's a bigger issue, then I think we should all need to know about it right away. 
Now over on Patreon, Finney wanted to chime in in regards to the Y cable with mixing audio signals discussion. They said most consoles line outputs are designed so they will not be damaged if they're shorted out or reverse driven. And usually if a console's powered off, its audio output will be high, high impedance so it's as if it's not even there. They don't guarantee this for all consoles, so please don't blame them if anything goes wrong. This is just to say that they're only aware of two exceptions. If you have an AV Famicom, it shorts the left and right audio pins together, which will turn anything that's connected in parallel in parallel to that to mono, even if the AV Famicom is not powered. That is a very cool tip. I didn't realize that. Thank you. And if you have a PlayStation 2, it mutes the output when in standby, so anything connected to that would be shunted and either barely audible or not audible at all unless you unplug the console for... Or if you have a fat, you switch the, off the big power switch and back. So that's pretty cool. Those are two really neat tips. Um, so just to reiterate again, this is if you want to do something like take two consoles and plug them into the same audio inputs, as long as only one console is powered on at a time, there should be no safety issues. However, there could always have some kind of analog interference, some ground hum, something added that wouldn't be there if you plugged it in directly. However, Finney just added two more gutches in that as well. If it's a mono split signal, it could turn everything into mono, uh, and PS2 slim or fat, if you don't turn the switch off and back, could lower the output. So uh, I appreciate the extra info. I'm also kind of glad that uh, my statement still rings true. There's no safety issue. It just might cause unwanted issues. But yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. So thanks for sharing. Next up, Rent Optional wanted to follow up on the discussion we were having about their triple bypassed VA7 Genesis. So VA7s are the Model 1 Genesis consoles that essentially have a Model 2 motherboard in it. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the best way to, uh, to visualize it. And while some of the earlier revisions of the Model 1 Genesis could never really have a perfectly clean RGB signal, it can come very close, but never flawless or as good as some of the later models, I thought the VA7 could, but Rent Optional was getting some jail bars. So they talked to both Zaxor and Tianfong on Discord and found out that while the modder didn't do a bad job, there were some issues that could have been fixed that would have made it better. So Zaxor noticed that the modder routed the RGB wires past the VRAM instead of what's recommended, um, which is a much shorter run that doesn't pass it. And also Tianfong noticed that it wasn't the best place to pull power. So the modder offered to redo it for free, which is always awesome, got it back to rent, and now there's no jail bars. So that is really cool. Um, you know, this is one of those things where just making sure to have a modder that's done it before to, and who knows how to do it is always so important. Or in a situation like this, have a modder that's just a good, it has good customer service. And now everybody kind of wins. Yeah, rent, it sucks that you had a jail bar filled Genesis for a while, but now yours is awesome. Your modder hopefully knows better and will do this method in the future. And yeah, I mean, as always, thanks to Zaxor and Tian Fong for helping. I couldn't do a lot of what I did without T and uh, Zaxor. All of the stuff that Zax has been putting out has been pretty awesome as well. So yeah, this uh, happy ending. Sorry that you started out with a jail bar filled Genesis, but very cool, and thank you for the uh, follow-up. I was really interested in that. Next up, Shane Coolen wants to know, what's the best device for downscaling 720p to 240p? Is it currently the RetroTINK 5X? 
And do I know if the RetroTINK 4K will support this as well? They're buying one anyway. They don't really care if it does or doesn't. They just want to know uh, if they need to buy a GBS Control, a Corio 2, or a RetroTINK 5X Pro. They want this for AVS, Switch, and other 720p-only consoles. So um, first of all, at the moment, the RetroTINK 5X is the best device that I know of to do it. Now, I just want to add that Shane is talking about 720p video games to 240p. If you're doing, if you want to watch TV shows to downscale it like that, going to 480i and uh, checking out that post I did with Lewis a while back would be, uh, or the post in the live stream would be the much better way to do it for watching TV. But for video games, yes, 100% at the moment is the best way to do it. The lowest latency, um, you could always do the line shifting if it looks a little weird. I showed a lot of that in the original launch video. So yes, absolutely. Now, funny enough, I have spent so many hours with the Tink 4K. And I have, I mean, I've tested this thing in every weird scenario, and I've only done one or two downscaling tests. So it should, without a doubt, do that. I just haven't tested it. I have gone as low as 480p to do some VGA monitor testing, but I would say 99.9999% sure that 720p to 240p would work as good or better than the RetroTINK 5X. I just, I don't like to... I don't like to confidently say things unless I've done them or unless it's been a, like if I had a long conversation with Mike about it, but it does do 240p output. It will do downscaling. All of this, it definitely does down to 480p. So my guess is the Tink 4K will do all of this stuff without any problems whatsoever. But worst case scenario, if you ran into that, like if you bought the 4K and let's say on launch day, it doesn't do the downscaling you wanted pick up the RT5X at that point, because I would be willing to bet somebody who just bought the 4K would be looking to get a couple hundred back, hundred bucks back by selling their original 5X at a discount. So um, my gut's telling me this is going to work absolutely perfect for you. But even if it doesn't, and you were planning on getting one anyway, I would hold off, um, unless you were in a rush to do this. Like, if this is something you wanted to do right away, I would just get the Tink 5X, and now you would have a dedicated downscaler in the future which is kind of funny to think of such a powerful device that does so so many amazing things upscaling used as a dedicated downscaler. But if you really start to think about the price of the Super Emotions, or if you have to first go from 1080 or 720 down to 480p and then use a Super Emotion, um, some of the, the lag that you get with the other devices, if you start to take the total solutions into account using the RT5X actually, Seems like a, a pretty awesome way to do downscaling. So always context through these things, right? If there's always somebody listening and go, you're you're crazy. You're recommending people spend $300 to downscale. That's dumb. I have a thing on Amazon I bought for a dollar that works fine. And then there's people that have already bought all the equipment over the years and go, wow, I wish I just had this before I spent all this money. So always need some perspective in here, but hopefully that'll be either one of those would be a perfect solution for you. Next up, Eric, aka Easy Goodnight, said they recently bought a house with not up to code, but safe according to an electrician, electrical, and they suspect irregular power coming in. They've always gotten a little noise in their lines, but it's worse here. They're concerned for their monitors and have found that voltage regulator recommendation. They're curious to know more, especially for my thoughts on comparing them to power conditioners for sound. So first of all, with all the respect and love in the world, get a, a second electrician to check it out just in case, um, or a second home inspector or somebody else. Because when we bought this house, the market was absolutely nuts. Uh, home inspectors were backed up like a month. 
Um, we took, you know, we basically had to slip a dude a 20 to get him here. And he rushed through the house and missed a few things. And one of the things that I don't think he would have caught anyway, by the way, because this was a weird one, but one power was run directly from a circuit breaker to a switch to a light. And they had routed power through ground. So because there was only one set of stuff run to it, it actually was fine. But if I had ever tried to splice it off to another light or um, tried to add an outlet on it, it would have definitely caught fire. So it's very scary to hear. Um, and, you know, there was actually even another one where it was split off uh, kind of behind me in the retro RG bathroom and there had an outlet connected to it and that was routed very wrong and that's where I used to plug the vacuum in because it was easiest to go around and the electrician said he was shocked that didn't catch fire luckily it only takes a couple of minutes to vacuum this but if I had let that run for a long time then it would have so just be very careful with power um, now thoughts on comparing those APC voltage regulators to power conditioners you know that's kind of like there are two different things. Um, you can get power conditioners. You can even get whole house power conditioners if you wanted. Uh, probably wouldn't work in your scenario if the wiring's a little sus anyway. But power conditioners are really meant to completely isolate everything. And that way there's no ground home. There's no interference from anything else. They're usually, the good ones are very expensive. And because power is kind of a complicated thing. Now, the... <coughs> excuse me, the one that I recommend uh, actually came from Renee. Uh, I, I wouldn't be smart enough to decipher which one is the better one to use and why, but the one that I recommend does do it like a, you know, like a poor man's version of power conditioning, I guess is the best way to put it. So I would try one of those or even a ground loop isolator if you're getting interference to see. And the reason I'm so confident to just throw out recommendations like that is it's not going to hurt. And for a ground loop isolator and one of those, you're talking less than a hundred bucks. And if you have noise coming through your consoles, whether it's on a flat panel or on a CRT or whatever else, it's worth trying that. It's definitely worth trying that. So I would definitely pick one of those things up just to see. Um, they're also seeing, uh, and also could that voltage regulator improve sound? Mm, that depends. That depends on how bad the ground loop actually is. They're also seeing rolling in some of their monitors that are not plugged into their UPS. So would the regulator also clear this up? Honestly, um, I think that you should just buy one and one ground loop isolator for the audio stuff and just test one at a time and see. Um, you know, you could always return them, but these are kind of things where even if you ended up fixing your power, you might want one of these put on your most expensive devices just because, because this is also one of those things where if lightning strikes your house, I mean, unless it like strikes actually right where your outlet is, it's very likely that you'll blow out the voltage regulator and nothing else. Um, certainly a, a lot more protection than one of those surge protectors, which are really just six plugs wired together with a switch and on and off switch. There's nothing protection about those unless you turn the switch off. And even then, some of those cheap switches, I bet you it would arc right over. So uh, this is one of those things where I'm not knowledgeable enough to give you in-depth info into why and how all of this stuff works, but I do know that it's not going to hurt putting that voltage regulator on, 
And it's not a waste of money to just buy one and see, because at the very least, you could put it just on your most expensive monitor or flat panel and then know that there's some extra little bit of protection in there. But if you wouldn't mind, follow up and let us know. You know, did you buy one and it did nothing? Did you buy one and it worked with one thing, not the other? Did you end up buying 10 because it worked and cleared everything up? Um, you know, and once again, good luck with the wiring, because I know what it's like. And it, it's scary to open up a wall box and think, uh-oh, what's coming next? Next up, Charles Madeer has a setup that they're looking to be VGA switch based. I'm not sure why the choice for VGA was made, or maybe you told me and I forgot my apologies. However, um, it's RGB over VGA, which is doable, but there's always some bumps in the road. Um, depending on the switch that you're using, you might always need clean sync. There's voltage issues, and voltage is exactly what Charles is worried about. So uh, some consoles, you could absolutely have custom cables wired to do it all over a D-sub connector. Depending on your switch and the other devices you're using, you might actually need something like a sink cleaner, uh, which could do RGB SCART in and VGA style out. It's still RGBS, but you could have the higher voltage sink. And you could even have other devices that separates the sink to H and V. And that might help for compatibility issues with some odd monitors like the Ikigami that Charles has. So Charles has all of this stuff run into an, uh, a mechanical VGA switch and then into an Extron RGB 160XI, which is an RGB interface. And that also would allow for, if there is RGB-HV going in, it would recombine it to RGBS. So the issue is, how, are the voltages safe on those? Um, first of all, you would want to look up the spec sheet of your Ikigami monitor. I know for a fact that some PVMs can absolutely take TTL voltage on their sync port, that, uh, but not all. So you want to double check and make sure that your spec sheet can handle that kind of voltage. If it says like one volt peak to peak, so PTP or lower, then no. And if it says five volt peak to peak or 3.3, you're most likely going to be fine. However, if you're going out from BNC into the SCART input of anything, so Charles has a RetroTank 5X, but it doesn't matter, any SCART device, you cannot send TTL voltage. So in that case, you would either just get a cheap um, BNC to VGA cable and use the HD15 to SCART that will absolutely drop down to a safe voltage, or you could have a custom BNC to SCART cable made with a 470 ohm ish resistor on the sync line. Uh, it doesn't have to be 470. I've seen 630. I've seen 340. Whatever. It's all or it's all fine as long as there's a resistor in there about 470 that should drop the voltage down to a safe level. So that's really the only thing uh, to worry about. Um, you know, double checking that your monitor can handle the voltage. The other equipment, the VGA switch and the Extron, definitely could. And uh, making sure that no matter what, if you send this to a SCART device, you have a resistor on the sync line or just, like I said, BNC to VGA with a um, uh, HD15 to SCART. And if you do the VGA cable, that's not directional. So any VGA to BNC, VGA to uh, BNC to VGA, it doesn't matter. It's only when you use SCART are things like that directional. The only thing I do... Uh, I'm completely forgetting is why you decided VGA though. And more importantly, why do you think that you need 
horizontal and vertical sync separated in order to use VGA. You could just keep it RGBS. And if you're wiring these cables from scratch or ordering custom cables, you could actually have them made to send RGBS out with a VG, you know, the D sub VGA style connector. So are you splitting all of your consoles to H and V so that the 160 XI could then combine them back for better sync compatibility for the Ikigami? That would make sense. It's a bit of an overkill, but it would at least make sense and why you would want to do something like that. It just, uh, if there's anything else I could help clear that up, please let me know. Because this stuff does get really, really confusing, which is why so many people like to just use component video um, or just stick to all RGB SCART under spec and not mess with anything. But with the Ikigami, you might end up having some issues because of sync. So let me know. Um, hopefully I was able to at least point you in the right direction. Next up, Dustin Madison has another New York City question. If someone was relegating themselves to only public transit, street food, and a crap ton of walking, what would I say would be an average idea of what to budget per day? Um, so I agree, rent optional jumped in, buy a seven-day unlimited Metro card for $34. That would definitely help. That would get you on buses and subways and stuff like that. Um, or, or, you know, you could do that, uh, or depending if you're only going to be there a day or two, you could just buy a $20 one or something. But you, if you're going to be traveling a lot, then yeah, that would definitely save you some cash. Um, you know, street food really depends on what you're getting. I mean, about 10 bucks, I would think. Um, some of the best places aren't expensive. The halal cart I used to go to, it was always like six bucks and I got a giant meal out of it too. It was always super full. The lamb over rice they used to make was just the best. And it was, I mean, I, if I were a normal person, I would not have finished it because I'm a fat guy. I did, but I should have eaten like half for lunch and after dinner, half type of thing. So, <clears throat> you know, just pay attention to, uh, you know, are your eyes bigger than your stomach type of thing? Maybe getting a, a gyro, a euro, sorry, would have, uh, would have been a better move for me, but yeah. Um, so I mean, per meal, you know, 10 bucks for street food. And then if you're going out to a restaurant, that could be anything. And, and I've said a million times, so I'll make it quick, but just because a restaurant is expensive doesn't mean it's good. And when restaurants are amazing, they don't always end up being expensive. So you could have the best meal of your life with a a couple glasses of wine for a hundred bucks, <clears throat> or you could have a very, very good meal at a fancy place for 500 bucks. So, you know, it's, that's all relative. Um, the only other question would be what else to check out in the new England area that I'd personally say is worth the trip. Well, arcade Brooklyn clearly, but uh, I think you already meant that. So I think you meant outside of New York city, uh, you know, that's a hard one. I've grew up around the New York city area. So all of this stuff is just there. It's not really, special. Whereas I imagine if people came from, you know, like Arizona, it's a very different look and feel to it. I, I imagine it would be, uh, you know, they'd have 10 things that they thought were unique and different. So I don't know. I think I would probably just go to any of those YouTube travel channels and search for, you know, best things in the New York City area outside of New York and see what other people recommend. Um, but for me, personally, because I live around here, the best things for me to see are my friends. So <laughs> wherever I'm in Jersey, I get to see the whole, you know, Answer Infinity crew. And, you know, obviously in New York, um, I go down and visit the Arcade Brooklyn crew and everybody. And so, and <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. That's a, anybody have any suggestions for Dustin? Because I think I just lived here so long, it's all just the same to me. But 
yeah, at the very least, um, you don't have to drop a ton of money a day in New York if you're going to walk around a lot. But um, I would I would budget at least one or two fun, expensive meals just to kind of see what it's like. Here's an interesting one from Oliver Clare. They recently saw a video where somebody had a crazy gaming setup where everything was able to be powered on and just accessed with the push of a button. And one unique thing that they did was that they have their controllers always left plugged in. And the way they were able to do that with wire management is they had these little snap together shelves where the console was on top and there was only like a one or two inch shelf underneath it. And then it was sitting on top of whatever desk they had, but they would kind of tuck the controller cable underneath and then present the controller out front, just kind of sitting out. So that way, whenever you wanted to play your console, you grab the controller and pull it out. And when you're done, you kind of jam the controller back in. So it's kind of hard to get those snap together shelves anymore. So Oliver wanted to know, is this something that the community might be interested in to somebody like laser bear or retro frog or whatever, think that this would be a product that people would want. And the two things that immediately stand out to me, number one, without a shadow of a doubt, my OCD immediately hates that you would have to jam your cables underneath. Whereas where I have them hanging over there, whenever I grab my controller, the cable is nice and straight and doesn't crimp up. So it's not pulling back on you while you're playing. So you would have to have some kind of very easy way to route that in there <clears throat> without crimping the cable. The other thing is, my method of putting my controllers in a box and then draping the wires out means that there's never dust on the controllers. Whereas when you leave them out and displayed, if you don't play a console for like a year, when next time you pick it up, there's going to be that like weird sticky layer of dust on it. And that stuff starts to, I mean, you, most of the time you could just wipe it down and be fine. You might even need like a wet wipe, but all that stuff adds up. So how many times you use like a, a Clorox wipe on a controller when that just little particles get in between the buttons, eventually, you know, a couple every couple of years, you would have to take those all apart and re-clean them. <clears throat> Sorry. Whereas when you have something stored safely away, even like a plastic tub would be better where you just cut like a U-shape and maybe even put like a rubber grommet in. You could always keep them protected from dust. Now, one could always also argue that my controllers are probably more scratched than yours because they're all sitting in a box together. So there's got to be some other kind of solution for this. But the cable management is the thing that, that jumps out and also just, you know, dust on the controllers. But maybe it's something like um, each each console has like a like a serving dish cover on it. I'm, I'm being a little silly, but imagine like a clear plastic top that you could put over it and you have a setup like this um, so that, you know, the console itself doesn't even get dusty over time. I wonder what I wonder what downsides there would be to that, though. But I don't know. I like thinking out of the box like this because. I just by talking about it, I'd be willing to bet somebody listening is going to go, you know, I have an idea. This might work and we might all be organizing our consoles different as a result. So keep the weird ones like this coming. Um, I think it's neat. I'll leave a link to everything Oliver talked about. But for me personally, I'm sticking with my everything in a box idea with the cables draped over just because it doesn't look that bad. It's actually kind of interesting. You know, a lot of people, when they see it, they're like, oh, what's that? And then I tell them, they're like, that's a good idea. So I'm sticking with my method because that's what works for me. But this was a cool, you know, something cool to think about. So check out the links if anybody's interested. Vladimir Raskin has a pretty interesting question that I'm comfortable sharing my opinion on what I think the answer is. But I'd really like to know what your all opinion is on this as well. So basically, Vladimir's question started out being triple bypass based, but then found the answer to the question on Zaxor's GitHub. 
And they were wondering, what's the etiquette for stuff like this? How do you combine all of this stuff into one wiki without, you know, basically without upsetting anybody or without feeling like you're stealing other people's info? And my personal approach to all of this was to always ask. Um, that doesn't always work out. There were plenty of times where I said, hey, I, I really liked your mod. Um, I'm going to rewrite it for me. Is, is it all right? Do you want credit? And most of the time people are like, they don't even want credit. Uh, sometimes they're like, yeah, I just say, you know, this is Bob's mod or something. And that also ended up in a couple of times I did things completely independently and people accuse me of stealing their mod that I don't make any money off of. Ugh, you're going to have to deal with that no matter what. But my personal approach is always just to ask. And if I ask on a, a site that, you know, that's an old site and I don't get a response, I'll ask again. I'll try to reach out in a different method. I'll give it some time. But if a good amount of time goes by, then I just assume it's an abandoned site and I'll copy it over to whatever I'm working on. Um, I try to credit in situations like that. I try to link back to the original and no one has ever gotten upset with me for doing it that way. Lots of people have gotten upset for things that didn't exist. I get a lot of crazy people saying that I stole their stuff when I did it years ago and they did it last year and think that, yeah, whatever. That's mental illness sucks. I'm sorry for anybody that has to deal with it. I'm also sorry that I have to deal with other people's mental illness daily, but uh, you know, it is what it is, I guess. But I've never had any legitimate complaint about doing it that way. And there were even times where people were like, Hey, you know, I, could you take the link to my site down because I don't, I don't update the site. I'd appreciate it if you just kept the info on your site and just, you know, treat it like yours. So that way, if my site disappears, it's still out there and I'm not getting questions. So really, I've had, while I made jokes and also just told some unfortunate true stories, it's been like a 99% positive experience when I just reach out. And some people will say no, but, you know, you could link to mine. Um, you know, which I always think is funny because you could link to mine. There's nothing wrong with linking to somebody's site, period, end of story. Uh, but, you know, some people have said, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Could you do it? Which I did. That's fine. I always just sent them to the other places. Other people have affiliate links baked into stuff. Uh, so they're like, yeah, well, you could use mine, but when you, people click on stuff, you know, I get a cut for that and that's how I pay for the hosting. So, you know, I, I got to respect that, obviously, but I would just ask, really. And uh, you know, Zaxor is super easy to work with. Um, the one thing that I have found quite a bit, uh, and I mean this with love, I, this is not a dig even in the slightest, but I have run into a lot of people that say things like, hey, I'm really comfortable with, let's just say GitHub. And I use it all the time. And I don't know this other wiki site. I'm not on it that often. So I'm just going to keep updating on my site. And you're welcome to take whatever you want, even write a little bot that scrapes it and adds it to yours. But I'm only going to stay, I'm only going to play in my sandbox and you can do whatever you want with the info and please just say link back or, or sometimes even just don't even bother linking back because I'll just do it here. You do your thing and we're cool. Um, and I'm fine with that as well. I, I never had any problems with that whatsoever. And that makes perfect sense because, you know, if you have a lot going on, it's really hard to just learn a completely other platform to do one thing to help out somebody else. So in a situation like that, always high fives. Like, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, you keep doing you. I'll work around that. And you never know. When I, I, I've actually had situations like that where people came back around and they're like, you know, I'd like to be part of this project. I ended up using this wiki more than I used mine. So let's do it this way. But 
talking about it and being patient, I guess, is the way that I would always approach it. Um, and the only times I ever really got pigheaded about anything is where people said, you know, don't link to me, which was almost never. It's like, it's not how the internet works. There's nothing legally or morally wrong to saying, hey, if you want some good info, look at this website. Uh, but that's, you know, that's just probably somebody being cranky, and I'm sure they didn't mean it. And so, yeah, I don't know. I guess the, the very short answer is just ask and talk about it, but expect uh, some grumpy bumps in the road if you do it. But you're not going to get that with Zaxor. So I imagine, just guessing completely out of the blue here, that Zaxor might say something like, I'll keep doing my stuff on GitHub, but feel free to to put it on console mods and just link back to my GitHub for reference. But I don't want to put words in Zaxor's mouth here. I'm just guessing. Um, but that, I think, would be an easier conversation than some of the ones I've had had over the years. So what do you all think? Did I approach any of this stuff wrong? Have I accidentally stolen people's stuff by linking to their site and saying, go here for the guide? <laughs> I seriously doubt that. But uh, it's an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm happy to share what I've done over the years. And if I'm ever wrong, I'm wrong. But I've never intentionally stolen anything. It's always been the opposite. It's always been Maybe not even intentionally, but people have stolen stuff I've done, presented it as theirs, and then come back and accused me of stealing the thing that they got from me. So it's kind of funny, but whatever. Oliver Clare wants to know what I think people should do if they're using consoles that have audio tracks like Dolby Atmos, but also want to have a setup that routes the RetroTINK 4K, which is not going to be able to support Dolby Atmos. And I think the solution to this is kind of on the easier side. Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this, and I think for most people, it's going to be just use an HDMI audio extractor like the one I showed in that video, or use an HDMI matrix switch. And that way you could route things either direct to your TV, back through the tank, into your AVR, whatever else. I think that's just going to be the easiest solution for almost everybody. The only solution in which that would not work is if you're using ARC from your TV. But if you do that, you could route everything through your AVR, including the tank, uh, or route everything through your AVR first. And then on the output of that, you could get a splitter that definitely passes ARC and CEC control. You'll have to spend more. The, uh, the cheaper ones you find on Amazon and AliExpress won't do it, but you'll have to spend like I think it's like 200 bucks, but there are absolutely HDMI splitters that uh, have like output one passes CEC and ARC and output two does not. And if that's the case, get one of those, route everything through your AVR first, even if you have to put an HDMI switch before the AVR and then into it, and then have that go to your TV with ARC. And then the only other thing that you could do at that point is whenever you're using your RetroTINK 4K, switch your TV to the different input but it's still run through your AVR first. So the only thing that you might be missing would be the ability to uh, control the volume through your TV's volume, but that's a very small thing to think about. You know, that just means you have to use your AVR's remote when you're, when you're using the Tink 4K, which, you know, I don't think that's going to be a big issue. And I do think that there's probably other ways to even solve that. So I think that's the easiest way. Most people are probably just going to run everything through an audio extractor. And if you're playing stereo tracks, whatever, use your TV speakers if, if you don't need uh, surround sound. But if you're going to play the other ones, then you're going to turn on your AVR anyway. And I, I just think that ARC is something where if people are using it, you've probably already run into issues. So you're probably expecting something like this anyway. But there's definitely ways to solve that as well. Um, 
one thing you did mention is uh, you said I probably wouldn't route a Series X or One X uh, or a PS5 through the Tink 4K. Yeah, I, I absolutely would, but I would have it in a matrix switch where um, if I had one of those consoles, I'm mostly going to be outputting 4K 120 to a 120 hertz OLED. And uh, but there, I'm sure there's going to be retro-styled games on those platforms. And if they're in 120 hertz, I would go direct to the TV. But if there's just a retro-style game at 60 hertz, I would love to route it through the Tink 4K to add scan lines to make it feel like I'm playing a, a retro game through a CRT. So I I would consider that. Now, it's not going to be every console, and you're, it's not going to be a common thing for people. I think most commonly would be for people to route their 4K 120 sources through a completely different HDMI switch direct into that port of their TV. But it's still something that I think you sh uh, people should consider, and especially with consoles like the PS3. I mean... My favorite PS3 game is Daytona, so I'm definitely going to be playing that uh, with CRT filters on it. But yeah, it's a good question, and let me know if I missed something. But uh, I just I didn't think that one was as hard of an answer, especially I think because I obsessed about it when I was doing the Tink 4K video. I was like, it's got to be easier than just get a splitter, but or it, it's got to be harder than just getting a splitter. But it uh, I don't think it is. I think an HDMI audio extractor or a splitter on the output of your AVR really would be the best way to do it. Dustin Madison wanted to just give me a heads up that on the audio only podcast services, the last two podcasts weren't showing up. And what ended up happening was super weird. The anchor podcast page where I upload everything, they had changed their upload page, like their whole workflow was different, which I hate when companies do this, just leave well enough alone it drives me crazy when people make it harder to do the same thing I've done for a year. But that's it seemed like everything was working and everything appeared to be scheduled properly. However, after it actually went live, when I went back and looked at the page on Anchor, it said that the podcast was zero, zero long. So, you know, the file was there, but it wasn't reading it as anything. And I didn't pick up on this until Wednesday. So I went back and I just, uh, luckily, with the way Anchor works is you don't have to delete and redo everything. You could just re-upload the file. So I did, and that seemed to fix it. So I will double check when this one goes out tomorrow morning publicly to the, the podcast only or yeah, the audio only services. I'll double check when I wake up in the morning, which is usually around the 5am that uh, these things go live anyway. Um, I'll double check, but that was a weird one. So anybody else with anchor, you might want to double check that as well. If you schedule your podcasts to go live. Um, you know, I appreciate the heads up, but I also wanted to tell everybody else because there's a lot of people that listen to this that have their own podcasts and anchor really is a free and easy solution. I'm not getting paid by them to say that, although I totally would if they wanted to, <laughs> I just did something I use period. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, sorry about that, everybody, but never, uh, never hesitate to reach out. If you see a mistake like that, there was also web pages on the site that were missing info. And thankfully Justin was able to swoop in and save the day as usual. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate the heads up and sorry for the mistake. And if uh, if it's not live at 5 a.m. tomorrow, that means it happened again. But as soon as I'm able to get in front of a computer, I'll be able to fix it. Marcel Turin heard me talk last week about there are certain consoles that you might want to do some preventative maintenance to, like the Super Graphics, Neo Geo, and CDX, where you should put some tape to prevent scraping the motherboard or maybe even trim this down. And they want to know a link to a wiki or thread that covers the issue. So I'm pretty sure 
stuff like this is on the consolemods.org wiki. If it's not, let us know. I'm sure somebody on the team would be happy to help and take some pictures. This originated from social media posts. Uh, I believe that we posted on Retro RGB at the very least for the Super Graphics one. And for the Neo Geo, I'm not, I, I can't remember which revision it affects. Um, it's all CDXs and all super graphics, though. The CDX is just underneath where the CD mechanism touches the motherboard. The super graphics is the one piece of plastic. I'm pretty positive that's on retro RGB as well as console mods. Um, and I honestly don't remember anything about the Neo Geo one, although I remember Firebrand X talking about it. But I mean, this is the perfect uh, explanation as to why we need console mods, because I think it was Firebrand X found the Neo Geo one. But let, let's just pretend that was it for sake of argument. I think this was something like FBX was posting on Twitter, like, hey, I found something else. Here's a picture. We should all you know, make sure to do this to our consoles. And then what happens? It gets lost on social media forever. And uh, so that's why we really need the wiki and we need people that are willing to, to just take the time to take that picture. Like we discussed before, hey, FBX, mind if I put your picture on console mods and, you know, to, Firebrand X definitely would not have a problem with that. Just saying, have the etiquette, ask, you know, throw that up there, um, you know, and I, I just, that's why I'm always so unbelievably appreciative of people that are willing to take the time to do that. So uh, as far as the Neo Geo, I'm pretty sure it's the top cover, and it's one of the ones in towards the middle of the console. But um, check the console mods wiki, and if it's not on there, we'll we'll get it on there. And lastly, Matt Richenberg said they updated their pledge to a higher tier, so hopefully I can get rid of some of the ads. Thank you so much, Matt. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I didn't want anybody to feel like I was asking them to up their tier. I really tried to get that point across. Um, I just, I appreciate all of you so much, and I would never ask anybody to bump a tier up unless, like, you sold your company for a billion dollars. Then, yeah, you could afford a little more. But, um, in fact, I made sure that when Patreon was kind of changing their ways of how, how they were doing things, I created the, I basically deleted the $1 tier, created the $3 tier, so $3 is now the lowest, but everybody's grandfathered in. So anybody who got in at a dollar, you will be there forever. I will never bump you up. I've appreciated your support for as long as you've been here, period, end of story, because I just, I, I want people to know that I appreciate them, and I'm not taking any of this for granted at all. I understand that I could not do what I do for a living without you. Uh, and not just the monthlies. It is clicking on affiliate links, you know, telling other people that they're support services, either ignoring or shutting the trolls up when they're like, oh, Bob's just an e-beggar looking to buy another BVM, right? Because that's, that's what I do with the Patreon money. Anybody that's been on those sales streams knows I'm doing the opposite of that. But anyway, uh, but, you know, there's lots of ways to help out that so many people do, and I just appreciate it so unbelievably much. I do really hate the ads though. That is not a joke. Um, so what might end up happening is maybe a few people um, sign up that weren't signed up before and it's not enough to completely delete the ads. So then I also take a couple of website ads from just direct people that I would like to help. And then also then just delete the Google ads completely from the site. So maybe a combination of both is the answer. Um, the only problem I have, which any of my fellow nerds, please chime in on this and let me know your opinions. The only issue is on the desktop browsers, that's easy. Put it in the right toolbar. Um, and if uh, on the posts, drop it in the left toolbar as well. It's there. It's, you know, if it's a colorful ad, it'll probably catch somebody's eyes, but it's not in your way. It's not blocking the post. 
that's an easy solution. But what about on mobile when there isn't a right toolbar? What's the, is there, does anybody have any suggestions on that? Because it could be at the top or bottom of the page, but I'm not really going to get anything for ads that end up at the bottom of a mobile page that most people don't already, all don't scroll all the way to the bottom. So that would have to be, that would have to be a solution. And I just don't know the answer to it. So anybody has any, any thoughts, please let me know. I did talk to one other ad company a while back and just got a really shady vibe. And I just, I, I figured everybody sees Google ads all day long. So as, as annoying as they are, at least people are used to it. And then there was another company that I was like, ah, do I switch to them? Do I trust this company putting their code on the site? Uh, so I just didn't do it. So I think I don't want to look into another ad company unless somebody in retro works for or owns an ad company that I could do stuff like this where we could have real conversations. But I think for the most part, getting rid of the ads is just going to be a combination of more people signing up and maybe taking one or two ad sponsors on the website and kind of seeing how that all falls into place. But as always, I mean, I really want to hear your thoughts if you care about any of this stuff. If you don't care, don't don't say anything. I, I mean that in a nice way. But if if talk about money is annoying you, if um, you know if the ads are really upsetting, if you like the ads, which nobody. Nobody likes the ads. The old eBay ads were helpful, but I don't know. If you have an opinion, feel free to share it. Um, and if not, thank you for listening to me ramble. I'll stop now. Well, that's it for this week. As always, if you're new to these Q&As, please ask any question you feel like wherever it is that you support, but please just make sure to ask the questions in the latest Q&A posts. The way these services work, I can't really find uh, figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, as you see here, I really like just scrolling through and answering it in real time as if we were hanging out at a coffee shop or a bar somewhere just having a conversation. I like these to be laid back and welcoming and um, just very conversational style. So as always, like I just said, thank you to everybody who supports in any way. It is you who is keeping this going. I appreciate you all so much. And I will see you hopefully on Saturday for the uh, supporter live stream.